Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. By my calculation, I'd have to say that if you gave me a choice between a former homicide detective or a registered nurse, I would take the registered nurse every day of the week and twice on Sunday to hire them as an investigator for the medical examiner's office. That is, if I was the one doing the hiring, and this is why. Nurses, I think, are natural investigators. Um, Not to say that homicide detectives are not good investigators. It's just that in my world, the world of medical legal death investigation, our spectrum is a bit more broad than the typical homicide investigation that might occur out on the street. And the reason that nurses are so good at what they do is that they have to diagnose individuals based upon histories, based upon what their patient is telling them, and also what they observe, either in triage, maybe back in the emergency room, or maybe if they're up on a med surge floor and they're taking a look at a patient. Today, we're going to talk about two nurses. One who was a nurse anesthetist, and another that he was married to is a homicide victim. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Dave, over the years, I've, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals working. As a matter of fact, as, as a college student, I'd have to say I was very blessed, fortunate to have the opportunity to work in a general hospital and this is why it prepared me to become the medical legal death investigator that I wound up being. And I think on many accounts, I did a good job in my profession as a medical legal death investigator. And it can all be tied back to those experiences I had in the hospital as a young man. And the best instructors that I ever had. First off, here, here's how here's how I list it. The best classroom I've ever been in was the morgue. The best instructors I ever had were nurses, and it's it's part of the world that they indwell in. And with today's case, we've we've we're surrounded by medical professionals in this case, and also how people are treated and what to look for because some of these things can be very very subtle. Joe, you mentioned nursing, and Hoel Payot is a nurse anesthetist or an anesthetist nurse. Right. A okay. nurse, nurse anesthetist. Okay. Yes. And when he calls 911 and is seeking help because it's his wife, and 
his 911 call. He says his wife has taken some uh, prescription pills. She's not breathing. The first responder that shows up is a police officer. And I actually have watched his, watched his body cam footage. Yep. Because he says that when he gets there, uh, you know, arrives at the front door and Joel Payot, the husband here, he turns around and just goes right up the stairs. Police officer barely asking any questions. He's following I, him. Can I, can I stop you yeah. right there? Because I watched that same video. It's the cam, the cam vest. Right. I got to tell you, my guts got a little twisted there because I was, <laughs> and I know it's ridiculous. I was sitting there watching it and I, uh, I was in fear for the officer. Right. Because he said, the officer said that all he could see, he saw, he saw the shadow, his shadow, and it disappeared up the staircase. Right. And I'm thinking, Oh Lord, you know, cause these guys, you know, and it's, it's rote, I know, but you know, the most dangerous situations a police officer goes into are domestics yeah. and anything under a roof, as far as I'm concerned is a domestic right. until you can get it sorted out, you know? And, and so when he said, he said, yeah, he said, and I just saw his shadow going up mm -hmm. the staircase and I was thinking, Oh Lord, I, I, you think about these poor police officers out there and what they have to endure and what they're relying upon in their senses. But you know, for, for this young police officer, he gets up there and he's faced with something that a lot of cops are faced with somebody that's obviously in cardiac arrest. It doesn't right. necessarily mean that there's blood everywhere or anything like that. He does go right up the stairs behind Joel Payot. And I did the same thing as you did. It was a gut kick because I thought, what is going through his brain right now? What am I walking into? Yeah. But fairly quickly, he he's already put a little bit at ease because he notices that the person he's dealing with is wearing scrubs. Yep. And that immediately puts him on his heels a little bit. And when he gets up there, he has been told by the 911 communication that uh, the CPR has been taking place and he's looking at this medical professional in front of him and he's, he's obviously more experienced. He's further up along the line of healthcare than I am. That's what the officer is saying. I expect he'll want to continue with CPR, but he doesn't. He relinquishes it, turns it over to this police officer to continue CPR. That was the first red flag. But then there were other red flags that happened after that. And as we get into this story, you realize this is a couple that's been married 10 years. They are not currently living together. Right. Joel Payot and his wife, Maria Munoz, they have two children, two little ones, and they are separated. Joel Payot, the husband, is actually living with his girlfriend of the last two years, a nurse he works with. Yeah, and, and if it, it couldn't get any more complicated... Maria, who is when the police officer shows up up there and well is over her and he's doing chest compressions as he's watching this kind of unfold before him, unknown to the officer, obviously, at that moment, Tom, Maria's a nurse. She's not a nurse in the U.S. They met 10 years prior in Puerto Rico at that point in time. And, you know, by all accounts, they fell in love. They wound up, you know, getting hitched and did have kids, but they've been married for a decade now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as it turns out, well, you know, he, he was, he was living fast, man. Yep. And, you know, with the position that he's in and he, here's what many people don't understand. If, if you deal as a nurse in anesthesiology, uh, which, and kind of let me break this down for people that don't understand, because this really plays into the story. Um, if, 
if you don't understand, because if you've ever gone into uh, into a uh, a surgical situation, maybe it's a day surgery, or maybe maybe you're gonna you know really go through major surgery, you're gonna have people from the anesthesiology department that are gonna come out and visit you before you go to surgery. Right. All right. Generally, it'll be a nurse, and then maybe the anesthesiologist, who is the physician, will show up. So this is kind of how it breaks down. Um, you've got a physician who is an anesthesiologist. They're not the surgeon, but they are the people that are going to handle all of your anesthesia while you're under, and they're responsible for it. Well, if you've got like a major surgery going on, say, for instance, it's a, I don't know, let's just pick one. Let's say it's a, a, a cardiac bypass surgery, and it's going to be kind of detailed. It'll take a little while. You might have the doctor on the stool, as they say, in there that's monitoring everything, the anesthesiologist. However, there might be other lesser surgeries. And look, no surgery is lesser to anybody that's having the surgery. Right. But, you know, a bypass surgery is not the same as, say, for instance, a knee replacement or, you know, something like that, uh, or having a a boil removed. Um, You might have the nurse who works under the anesthesiologist, um, there, you know, handling that on site with the surgeon in the room. And so you might have multiple surgeries going on in multiple surgical suites and the anesthesiologist acts almost like an umbrella where they're in charge of all of these, these nurses. And they might, if, if their workload isn't too heavy, they might go between surgical tables. All right. Okay. And just kind of monitor things. And so, but with that, with the training that OL would had have had to go to, this is my point. I know I'm kind of going a long way around the board of uh, the barn with this, but when you get this, to this level in nursing and you've gone through the training he's gone through, dude, you're making more than an entry level RN at this point in time, you're knocking down big bucks. And he was, and he had bought like himself a very nice vehicle. He had bought his wife a very nice vehicle. He was, he was living large. And speaking of large, as we're going to find out, there was something else that was making Hoel rather large. And he had apparently uh, developed a a dependency, uh, a need, a, uh, I don't know if you can call it an addiction, but he had gotten into using steroids. And of course that throws an, a, a wrench into everything else, the dynamic of the family, because he, up to that point, he, he's supposed to be this fantastic husband, father, family guy, this sort of thing, going on trips with his wife, you know, he's taking care of them, all these sorts of very supportive and isn't it amazing? You begin to see how he changes over a period of time, all the way up to the point where I think the police are getting rather suspicious. They got suspicious right away, Joe. Yeah. B- because first things first, you have a man, Hoel Payot. He calls 911. My wife is unconscious. I'm doing CPR. Send help. When they arrive, he has sweated through his, uh, his, his scrubs. Yeah. He's not answering questions fully. He's darting around and around. He seems like he's on something. That's what the first officer yeah. on scene. And then the detective that shows up about 30 minutes later. Yeah. He then, when they say, well, what did he claims that she took some pills? That's what right. he tells from the early. She's tr- tried to kill herself, took pills. What did she take? 
And I think he came up with clonazepam. Not clonazepam. Clonazepam. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And he, when the, the officer says, well, where are they? Because when, according to this police officer, the first one on the scene, he said that normally when somebody takes a, an overdose of pills, you find the pill bottle nearby. Right. In this particular case, Joel Payot has to go into the restroom and gets up in the medicine cabinet and looks around for a pill bottle and then comes back with it. Here's the pill she took. And that was another red flag. So immediately you've got a couple of red flags that are already going on, plus the way he's acting and everything else. And then, you know, he hits him with, yeah, this, you know, we're not actually living together anymore. We were having a heart to heart discussion. I've been living with my girlfriend. And by the way, we had a fight a couple of nights ago. And yes, while we were having this argument and I called her all these horrible names that a lot of witnesses heard, I also used my hand and bashed in her windshield. Uh, yeah, there's your, yeah, there's your yeah. steroids for you. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, are you dealing with a case of roid rage? Let me throw one more thing in about the clonazepam, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, first off, clonazepam uh, is, is a medication that is used for anxiety primarily. Some people actually use it uh, not just for anxiety, but they'll also use it, um, use it to aid them with sleep. All right. Uh, they might, if their tablets are scored, which I think if I remember correctly, the clonazepams I have seen, I don't seen, they are scored, which means they have the groove cut in them. You can break them in half and you know, the individual can take half of one perhaps and they aid in sleep, but it's, it's meant to knock down anxiety, that sort of thing. Here's the thing. When, <laughs> when he showed these tablets to the cop, guess whose name was on it? It wasn't her name. It was, it was his name that was on these things. And he puts them on the floor adjacent to her body as she's laying there and they go back to compressions. And here, here's the fascinating thing on the cam itself. You can see him at one point in time, reach over, grab that vial and stick it into the pocket of his scrub shirt. The cop actually had to call to him and say, Hey, where, and you can hear the cop, you know, on his, his, his recording. It's like, where are those pills? I, I know that they were here. He had to call down to hell and say, Hey, where, where were those tablets? You know, where are they? And he goes up, back up the staircase, looks at the police officer and literally Dave tosses them to them and says, here they are, you know, and it's at that point in time, the, can you imagine you're the cop? And you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, this is, this is pretty significant evidence of what has happened here. Doesn't necessarily mean there's a homicide. It's just like, this is demonstrative of an individual that may or may not have taken drugs, uh, have taken an OD, but yet he's going to take the pills with him when he exits from here. And it was already weird anyway, because you know, that the police officer, was absolutely correct in his assessment of most ODs. We don't, in when it comes to taking one's own life, I think a lot of people believe that in the medical legal field, we handle lots of intentional overdoses. In my experience, no, compared to firearms, uh, primarily in hanging, uh, ODs are a distant third at best. All right. Uh, it's just, you handle them, but you don't handle them with great frequency. But when you do handle them, you notice like there is 
an open vial, generally it's open and it's empty <laughs> that's immediately adjacent to the to the body. And here's the other thing that comes into play here. Most of the time when you have an OD, you're going to have a combination of other things. You'll have it intermingled with other drugs, and there might even be alcohol. But in this case, none of these existed adjacent to the body. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and a big shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing free samples. I live in an area where allergies are a day-to-day issue, and finding an over-the-counter option for relief is like the holy grail. I use Astapro, and I strongly recommend you give it a try. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, and it's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays can take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. When you work... uh, in the medical field, uh, I found uh, that you never know what you're going to bring home with you. <laughs> uh, because many times, if you're working in a very high-paced uh, environment, uh, um, you know, like I did when I was a young man, you put stuff in your pockets and you forget about it. You're not doing anything malicious. I get sidetracked all the time, and I'll put something in my pocket, and I'll walk home. And in the medical field, you put different things in your pocket, though, uh, particularly if you, uh, you know, maybe you pull the cap off of a needle. That cap might go into your pocket, or um, I've, I've come home on my scrubs where I've actually, you know, because I worked in the morgue for so long as a path assistant, I would write all over my scrubs. I'd write things on my pants legs. Um I uh, I have tape on me. You know, you, you peel tape off. You stick it on your scrubs to remember things. Um, but one thing that you should never come home with, Dave, are hospital grade drugs. That that's not something that that is a common practice. Wow. It has been done over the years, and people. Uh, there are many people, unfortunately, that are uh, in therapeutic practice out there that become thieves and they steal. Uh, but there's there's a very particular accounting that goes on with with pharmaceuticals inside of hospitals, uh, you know. And uh, we begin to think about things like drug carts, you know, because they they've got they've got drugs on board, or there's a, a real connectivity with the. Uh, uh, the pharmacy that's inside the hospital, people don't realize that each each hospital has a pharmacy that's in-house that, you know, every floor orders from. And so there's a real chain, just like we have in forensic science, there's a real chain 
of evidence or connectivity with all of these orders and things along the way. And uh, you, in, in this particular case, uh, drugs do come into play and they are drugs. They are drugs that are associated, unfortunately, uh, with, uh, with anesthesiology. I wanted to take you back to the scene, Joe. Yeah. All right. We have um, first responder. It's the middle of the night. You get a 911 call. A husband says, my wife is, I can't get her up. She's uh, having cardiac arrest, whatever it is. Um, CPR is not working. Send help. They show up. She's dead. Now, police immediately, and I don't know this because I've never been on the scene as you have. And I'm curious because the first officer on scene, he has his body cam and you and I have both watched that. And we saw what he saw and what worried him from the demeanor of uh, Payot, Hoel Payot, the husband. Um, he, the officer has to take over CPR from this medical professional which is odd enough. You would think if it's your wife, even if you are separated, you're trying to save her life. You would want the best person to do this, the medical professional to continue doing CPR. But then when the detective shows up 30 minutes later, she's already been declared dead. Hoel Payot is sweaty. He is not answering questions fully. And the detective arrives and says, Hey, what's going on? You know, he's asking the man who is there, you have a dead woman. She's 31, mother of two. She's dead. She's in good health. She wasn't hit by a car. What happened? What's going on? And Hoel Payot answers, I live a very private life. And those questions are something I don't want coming out. How is that an answer that anyone can accept when you have your dead wife on the ground? Uh, for me, if as from an investigative standpoint, if I have a statement that is going to be thrown my way, similar to that on any level whatsoever, guess what it's going to compel me to do? Dig deeper, baby. That, that's, that's where I'm going. Uh, if, if your life is an open book, first off, let's just, let me frame this correctly. Because not everything is everybody's business, right? Obviously, you know, I, I I like being private. I like having my privacy. But we're talking about your dead wife, right? Okay, and you're so, the one on top of her. You're the one that called nine one one. Yeah, you're the finder. You you are the finder. Uh, you discover her, and he had alluded to the fact that they had had um, relations. <laughs> they had had sex, and he had taken a shower. Uh, so, you know, you're going down this road, dude, you're the medical professional. And not only are you a medical professional, you're, a, you're very high end. All right. I mean, you're training a, as it applies to, um, not sustaining life, but saving life particularly because he, he would not have been skilled, not just in the, in, in pharmacology as mm -hmm. it applies to anesthesiology. He's also uh, highly skilled in what's what's called uh, uh, ACLS, which is Advanced Cardiac Life Support. Which is wow. Like, if you wait a minute, you, I yeah. didn't know that. I oh, missed yeah, that yeah. ACLS. I yeah. missed that. <laughs> yeah. If you if you were going to run a code, this is one of the guys you would probably want around uh, that might be assisting. And any any of these people that work in this environment, 
Uh, I'm not saying every single one of them, but you would want a guy with this. You would want this guy on the team. So it, it even strikes me as um, this guy's got a cape in his locker at work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that he he has this level of training here, and you know the the police officer he just kind of steps into the middle. Of, can you imagine how surreal yeah. this is? He just kind of steps into the middle of it. But let me tell you how I hope this. I hope this because you know the, the officer that we're talking about is. He's a beat officer. He's a guy with a, a vest cam on. All right. right. He he rolls to the scene. Officer, De, hope, officer De La Cruz. I hope this guy, I hope he becomes a detective someday. And this is why. Because one of the things he noticed, one of the things he noticed is that when he looked down at her, he and his colleagues actually made note of the fact that she had what we refer to as kind of a, a focal area of hemorrhage in the crook of her right arm, um, which in and of itself is quite interesting because um, the crook of your arm, that, that area where your elbow bends, and right now we're, we're talking about if you take your palms, everybody that's listening to me, take your hands, palms up, okay? And if you're looking down at the crook of your arms, these these are called the antecubital fossa, and and that's that's the term that's used for them. It's the crook, all right. Ten dollar mm-hmm. word for the ten dollar words for the crook of the arm. But what do we do there in medicine, or what do medical professionals do? Well, that's where they start IVs, right? Right. You know, that's if they're going to put a line in you, that's where they're going to go. They might go in the back of the hand, but traditionally, you know, they're going to apply this right there. And they look down and they saw they saw this little focal area of hemorrhage, which is fascinating um, in that there was no evidence that, that the EMTs had tried to start a line there. That means that it was started somewhere else. And the fact that there's hemorrhage, Dave, is an indication that this is an antemortem event. It, so it's happening before she dies. And this is in her right, the right aspect. Um, and we do all kinds of interesting things with these. If, if I suspect, uh, I'll give you for instance, if I suspect that I'm dealing with an IV drug overdose Mm -hmm. or, you know, somebody that's injecting, uh, particularly into the arm or the leg. And I, I may have mentioned this before, but what I will do is I'll wrap my hands. Let's just say it's the arm. I'm going to wrap my hands around the decedent's upper arm up around the bicep as tightly as I can. And I'm going to run my hand down the length of their arm, almost like you're, you're milking a cow. And I'm, as I'm doing this, I'm looking down at the exposed surface of the arm. We really do this in the morgue. You look down at the exposed surface and guess what? If there is a hole in the arm, we call them NPWs. It's, it, they actually are called NPWs, which is a needle puncture wound. And that's how they're written up in the, in the autopsy report. Um, as you begin to kind of slowly go down the arm, if there are needle puncture wounds there, guess what? they're going to uh, present with little bitty blood droplets that will issue forth out of the body, which is, it was uh, the first time this was demonstrated to me was by an old forensic pathologist. He said, this is the easiest way to tell if you're dealing with an IV drug abuser. You want to, and he referred to it as milking the arm. He said, you want to milk the arm, you know, go down the arm and you need to check both, both surfaces of the arm. You're going to check the the dorsum of the arm and you're going to check the palmer, what he referred to as the palmer aspect, palm up. 
just to see. And here in this case, they actually had that. They had that little focal area of hemorrhage that gave an indication that something had occurred. She had had something introduced into that soft tissue to leave behind that little area that bled in the indwelling tissue, Dave. Now, there were some things that came out right there on the scene. You mentioned how uh, Officer De La Cruz noticed this. He's an, he's a beat officer with the cam car, you know, the chest cam going on. And the detective arrives 20, 30 minutes into this. And the detective does talk to Joel Payot on scene. Payot tells police that he had moved out and was living with his girlfriend. He says that he was at home to talk to uh, Munoz about their marriage. He tells, uh, says that Munoz took the pills at some point after they had talked. He says that uh, there were medical items that were found around the home and they're his. Okay. He does claim now the things that they found. um, Let's see on scene. They found um, a needle catheter on the stairs. Uh, They uh, they've got two small children and the police are wondering, why would you have a needle catheter on the stairs with two small children running about? They also found besides the needle on the stairs, uh, first responders found syringes and IV equipment in a medical bag at the home. Now, Payot is a nurse, but he works in operating rooms, and those aren't the normal items that one brings home from work. That just isn't, he doesn't have that type of bag he would bring home from work normally. So again, little red flags go up. You mentioned the spot on the arm, you know, that they found in the crook of the arm. And he said she took the pills orally. Now they're going by what, Payot is telling them his wife did yet when the medical examiner is looking at this, detectives are looking at this and they're all saying, okay, she's obviously died of a drug overdose. That's what it appears to be, but we can't tell. Is it suicide accidental or is it a homicide? How do you figure it out, Joe? If you're looking to kind of size up a case, um, from the perspective of an OD, you know, we'd already talked about uh, with if you're taking oral medications, let's say someone is taking clonazepam, they have access to it. They're going to down the clonazepam. Um, it, it's going to take a goodly amount of the clonazepam to bring about death. All right. But if you combine that for perhaps with alcoholic beverage or something, that might do the trick. There's any number of things that can happen, but in most most cases, uh, I've gone out on the scenes where I have I have found upwards of 25 empty vials, if you can imagine that, of medications, where people would take them by the, they get into a frenzy and they'll they'll take medications like this, um, <clears throat> and you find evidence of that uh, many times. We don't have that here. As a matter of fact, he had to go to the medicine cabinet to recover that. All right. Uh, I, I can't imagine somebody picking out a certain number of pills thinking, this will be enough. I'll take this. I'll take six. That'll yeah, be enough I, I, to kill I me. I don't, I don't think. And let me need... put the top back on this real tight and put it back in the cabinet because yeah. even though there's needles on the stairs, I don't want the kids finding these pills that won't kill them if they take one. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you, you have to be, I can't imagine anybody being that, uh, OCD, you know, yeah. that, uh, in, in the midst of such an emotional right. event, uh, at, like suicide is. Yeah. And so we, so we can strike that off the list, but when you think about, well, did she OD 
um, with a syringe of something. Well, we know that she was a nurse in Puerto Rico. She's not currently practicing. She didn't, she hadn't sat for the boards in the U S she was going to have to do some kind of bridge program here, you know, in order to get certified. Um, if that's the case, then she is not going to be the person that would have access to a syringe. And then if she did, what in the world did she draw up in order to inject into her body that would have brought about death? Because first off, there's nothing around. I've had people that, um, that have injected primarily heroin abusers, um, and the loads have been so hot. I've got one image in my mind of two guys that had gotten out of prison and they both went to quote unquote party and they injected, um, uh, with heroin and both died one holding a needle and the other still in his arm. Um, and you find evidence of that. And also, you know, you hear about tourniquets and spoons and there's nothing to indicate that in this particular case. All we know is that we have got a perfectly healthy young lady who's the mother of two beautiful children that she adores and we've got disharmony in the home and she's dead You know, Dave, I'd mentioned a little while ago that if I could pick an investigator or like a, a new investigator to come in to uh, a staff um, at a medical examiner's office, I would not hesitate um, to hire a nurse because they're, they're so good at what they do. They're natural investigators. And plus in the ME world, um, we don't, you know, only 1% of the cases that we handle are homicides, you know. And the cops are working on those with us. We, we're still left with all the other manners of death, suicides and natural deaths and unexplained deaths, accidental deaths, you know, all of those things that are still out there that have to, and suicides that have to be explained. Um, and nurses are just, they just have a knack for it. They're really good at it. And they're detailed people most of the time. Um, in this case, though, I think that with this fellow, I think that his lack of attention to detail was actually his downfall in this you particular know, case. I got to ask you something because you mentioned, uh, you were talking about how he had built a career that he was at the top of the food chain for what he did financially, uh, as a nurse anesthetist, mm-hmm. which, uh, I think I should get a gold star for saying that properly. If uh, I could reach through, I would stick one right between your eyes. On your I'm floor. feeling it right now. And, <laughs> So he is, he's, and we know that he now has left his wife of 10 years with two children in their small, nice home. And he has uh, bedded down with his girlfriend of two years that he works with. We know because he tells police that he is using steroids. Uh, we knows that he is presenting a night of this death, um, as somebody who is possibly on drugs. His, uh, he is sweated through his clothes. He's being evasive with answers, but then they still can't quite get a handle on what has really taken place. So the medical examiner gets into it. And one of the things the medical examiner doesn't find, well, he doesn't find pills in the stomach. Now that means 
something else has taken place because the claim here is that she took pills that brought about her death. Now, a toxicology report is a pretty common thing, I'm guessing. But Joe, have you ever been called by, I don't know, uh, doctors, friends, detectives? I mean, in this particular case, the friends and co-workers of nurse anesthetist Poel Payot called the detective and medical examiner and said, hey, this guy was cheating on his wife. He was going crazy. He didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to pay for an expensive divorce. Uh, please look deeper. It was the phone calls from concerned friends. It was phone calls from colleagues yeah. at the hospital that said, please, please run a bigger toxicology. I don't even know what that means. Joe is the number of panels. What are we talking about yeah. here? Uh, the only panels I know are like when you open them on, let's make a deal. <laughs> Am I going door number one, door number two door? Yeah, I'm getting zonked with door number three. Are we dealing with multiple different types of toxicology reports? Yes, you are. Why is it uh, because, just one? Because it's not. Well, because first off, it's very costly, and oh, you're not okay. going to screen for every agent in the world. Um, it, okay, so no, wait a minute. That makes sense. That's why the head doctor calls the guy and yeah. says, "Here's here are the drugs you should be screening for because it was expensive." It was I didn't very, get that. Yeah, and, and it is, and and it, it wasn't the the doctor that kind of set this whole thing off because you know he's been this is not a a massive metropolis they're living in people yeah. know one another all right and they know what this guy's gone through he's lost his wife he's got these two babies um and he's a bright guy you know and he had been easy to work with but you know they had seen a change in him over the past two years leading up to this fatal event uh he he just turned into a different person according to them. Yeah. But that's beside the point. His wife is dead. And you know, when the, the, the anesthesiologist who is actually the physician, he reached out, he reached out to the powers that be and said, look, <laughs> let me tell you something. You guys need to dig a little bit deeper when it comes to your talks, because, you know, screen for, opioids and benzos and cannabis, you know, THC and you're talking all about those. drugs that are regular Joe yeah, like me. Yeah. If I yeah, was going to overdose, which is aspirin, you know, that shows up on mm -hmm. the panel there, there, you know, some of this stuff is not going to show up. Okay. And so they did begin to dig deeper. Well, when, you know, the, the cops are kind of sitting back and, and look, this happens in the medical legal world all the time, Dave. And look, you've been doing news for a long time, guess, and you know it before I say it, but one of the most common phrases is, well, they, the authorities say that they'll get back to it, but it's currently pending toxicology, you know, and we'll, we'll hear that, or it's pending cause of death and cause of manner death. How many times we have heard you heard that? We heard that with Matthew Perry most recently. Right. Pending toxicology report. Pending toxicology. Because, you know, they've... With him, you know, they're looking, uh, they're looking for any number of things that could have been in the system. As it turns out, it was ketamine with him, uh, which, oh, by the way, turns out that Maria Munoz had ketamine in her system. Oh, but that's, that's the least of these. Because with, just let me give you an idea of what drugs uh, she actually had on board. Uh, when she died. When she died. And it took them four months to get these results back. 
at autopsy, the reason that they knew that this was, they were going to have to go down a different road. I'm not saying that if they had found this, they would have not done tox. We do tox on every case. If you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. You draw the blood, you draw the urine, you draw the vitreous, you send it all in and you wait. Okay. Sometimes causes of death are very obvious, but when they opened her, they examined the contents of her stomach, Dave. There was no, no residue in her stomach. And yes, if people out there are wondering, we do find drug residue in, and it's something that we can see what they refer to as grossly. That means with the unaided eye. So if we have stomach contents, we will open the stomach. Generally, we'll pour the contents of the stomach into a separate container. And there's a kind of a, it's not complex, but there's a specific uh, dissection that we do with the stomach where we remove the stomach completely out of the body cavity. We place it in a separate container and we open it in another container so we don't lose anything. Um, I was just watching the the latest movie about... uh, uh, about Elvis and it really, you know, got back to me. I, I started digging back into his death and, you know, one of the things that they had done with Elvis is that when he had died, um, the folks at the hospital in Memphis had pumped his stomach and they threw the contents away. So you didn't really have that gross examination at autopsy. He was autopsy, but in most cases we'll take the stomach out and we will literally dump those contents into a container that way we can go through everything, and we do, with our hands, gloved hands. But we go through everything, and we look at all of the stomach content, and we'll say, well, we see vegetable matter, what appears to be meat, uh, whatever's there. You can see spaghetti, hot dogs, and yes, pills. And pills, you know, pills have kind of a, I don't know how to frame it really. It's almost like a, a coating and you'll hear it in advertisements, you know, it's timed release and they talk about, well, there's a coating that goes onto these pills and you're not just taking like compressed powder. It's actually shielded in something. And so that can be a bit resilient and it'll, it'll stay with you. They didn't find anything like that, Dave, in her stomach. And I can imagine, because I've been in this position, you think, oh God. Okay. Well, the answer doesn't lie here. So they, they had to wait a couple of months for these results to come back. But, but buddy, let me tell you something, Dave, when they came back, Oh my gosh, this is what Maria had in her system. She's got morphine. She's got Demerol. She's got Versed, which again (laughs) is something that will just knock you out. Propofol. You've got ketamine which of course is used as precursor for anesthesia with animals and humans. Um, and then you got lidocaine, which is kind of an interesting, you know, kind of an interesting thing uh, to find in this, in this grouping because lidocaine is something that probably all of us have, have had before. If you've ever had stitches, I know that I've, <laughs> I've had it's it. An, it's a number. It, yeah. It does numb the area, but you know what all of these things have in common? It sounds like an episode of Sesame Street. All yeah. of these things have in common. Dave, they're all injectables. Every one of them. You can draw them up. And you're not going to walk into your local pharmacist and say, I, I, I want to get the script filled for propofol. It, it's, this is a medication that is strictly used in a surgical environment. So when, 
can you imagine the shock on the Emmy's face when they begin to go through these drugs and they say, my Lord, what in the, why are all these in her system? Well, it, it, the, the, the arithmetic becomes pretty easy at that point in time. We're, we're not going to the moon here. All right? right. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple stuff at this point in time because you think you have to think about, you know, who has the knowledge, who has access, right. And, uh, and who, who would have the means, uh, who, who would have the ability authorities in this particular case felt as though that perhaps, perhaps that her husband, Maria's husband, had actually gotten access to her coffee that she loved so much. And when they're going to quote unquote talk, he had administered this cocktail to her of these drugs to get her in a compliant position. And then once he had her in that position, he cracks open, he cracks open this catheter, he sticks it in her arm, and then injects her with a propofol. And here's the thing, enough of this stuff will absolutely kill you. And in her case, it certainly did. Go, it was that simple that the doctor, when they came back with the medication, when they when they actually got that, that was enough to arrest him. And they did. They arrested Joel Palat. But when they got ready for trial, there was still the argument to be made that, you know, there are other ways one can get these besides him. And that was where the prosecution, they were able to find something. And they used an incredible way. Um, they put a team together of women attorneys to prosecute this case. They wanted to stand with Maria Munoz when they found her diary because to try to pretend she was trying to commit suicide, they had to analyze her life. What was going on with Maria Munoz? And they were able to read her diaries. They were able to break these down and look at her own words, her own thoughts, her own dreams, her own ideas. And they found out beyond a shadow of a doubt, she not only didn't want to die. She wanted to live. She wanted to be happy again. She was not happy with the way things were going, but she was willing to move forward, to let bygones be got bygones. Some of the entries, and she was seeking help from the church. She was seeking help from therapists. She was to find a way to make her husband happy again. Her, she wrote in one of her entries, my fears are, one, losing my family, two, losing my husband, three, damaging my kids, four, making the wrong choice. Another entry, I want to be kind. I want to be successful. I want to be a good mom, a mom that is present, engaged, and involved with my kids. Teach them values to be kind, to grow and learn as much as they can. Give them tools to be amazing, successful, happy human beings. These are not the entries of somebody who is getting ready to take their own life. These are entries of a woman in love with her children and her life and her family. And she is seeing it go leave her. And she says, my symbol, and she has a symbol of a heart, this last entry. Well, not the last entry I'm going to show, not the last entry in her diary. It says, my heart says one thing. My mind says another, something else. I am in a constant battle, a tug of war. I wanted to stop 
but they won't. They keep me sad. And those are my tears. She was crying for her relationship with her husband. The prosecution was able to bring that into court, Joe. And they were able to bring life to Maria Munoz. It wasn't just the dead body of a woman who had been administered a set of drugs that left her dead in the floor of her bedroom by her husband. This team of prosecutors that the DA put on Maria's case, they said to them, this spoke, this spoke of domestic abuse to them, the stuff that she had been through because, and it's almost like they had conjured her up, this diary had, where she was physically, you know, almost, not physically, but she was present in that moment, almost bearing witness to everything that had gone on. And I think the combination of the diaries and certainly that toxicology report left the jury with no other choice than to find this man guilty. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Body Bags.